Please pray with me. Almighty God, we give you thanks this day for the word of scripture that we have for us, but also we give thanks for the way that you continue to speak through scripture into our lives. Almighty God, we ask that you would be with us in this time of worship and in this time of learning and growing. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As Kathy mentioned, I'm starting a new sermon series this morning called Broken and Beautiful, and it's from the uh, Romans text, starting at chapter 8. The uh, lectionary has been with Romans for the last several weeks while we were in the book of Genesis, and so we're picking up this uh, second, kind of starting at the midpoint of Romans through the next few chapters in this series, and it's interesting because we'll spend most of the time in chapter 8, which is kind of right in the middle of the book of Romans, and and there's a lot... Um, in, in Romans, there's a lot of Paul writing to people and talking about the challenges of their world and the world at that time. And it seems to me, and I think that many of you would agree, that as we look around the world today, there's brokenness all around us. And we're seeing these challenges in the world, in our world today. When we look around the world, it isn't hard to see the brokenness. Brokenness is so readily apparent when we watch or read the news, if you're even still choosing to do that, right? We see the brokenness when we look at the oppressed and when we see the destruction in the streets and in our communities. We see the brokenness when we read about violent deaths that seem to be a constant right here in our own area. In fact, brokenness has become such a norm that when we see the headlines about violent deaths in Chicago, for instance, we might not even notice the statistics anymore. The numbness becomes yet another example of our brokenness. And I really don't need to give us example after example of brokenness because we are all too intimately aware, aware of the broken relationships, broken promises, broken dreams, and the brokenness that comes even from unmet desires, from dissatisfaction. Brokenness in the forms of diagnosis or injury or loss. Brokenness, whether we acknowledge it or not, is a part of our human story. For a little while, right after law school, right after I started practicing law, I worked on white collar criminal defense cases. Really, I ended up being the runner for the senior attorney who didn't really want to go back and forth to the jail to explain things to our clients and to listen to them. And I actually enjoyed this very much. I'd walk to the jail and usually have documents or forms to go over with our clients. Most of these clients, these white-collar criminal defendants, were business executives who had been arrested for some sort of financial crimes. Nearly always, they were arrested from their homes in the early morning hours with all their records seized at the same time as the arrest. So many times, I was bringing them documents that we had copied that were held by the government. And somehow, our clients would always tell me in those meetings that all the answers to their innocence were in those documents, and I believed them every time. So it fell on me to go through the documents and read through all their emails, reviewing everything. And these men, and in my experience, they were all men, uh, had common themes throughout their stories. I saw these themes in their emails, and I heard these themes in their impassioned explanations of why they had done nothing wrong. 
But most of all, I experienced these themes when I sat across the glass window talking to them using a telephone, looking them in the eyes with them on the inside in their yellow jumpsuits, a far cry from their Italian suits and Ferraris, looking them in the eyes and knowing that they had lost it all. You see, the theme that came up with every single one of them was an identity that was linked completely to their wealth and their power and their status and their ability to surround themselves with other people. People who in their eyes, people who wanted to be with them only because of their wealth and power and status. So when I was sitting there with them, when they're going over scribbled notes on paper, leading through a circuit, leading me through a circuitous maze to the explanation of their innocence, they were gasping and grasping for just a return to their normalcy. They, they wanted to put back the pieces of their broken lives. This brokenness that these men experienced, it's an extreme form of the brokenness that is what Paul refers to as the flesh. When we focus our desires on the things of the world, the money, the greed, the comparison of ourselves to others, rumor spreading, one-upmanship, power, accomplishment at all costs, success, we are, as Paul writes, living according to the flesh and setting our minds on the flesh. Think of it another way. Because this idea of, of living according to the flesh, it's even more broad than those aspirations I described. Consider thinking about it this way. Setting our minds on the flesh simply means being drawn away from God to things of, of this world. This is the concept that we call sin. Now, I mentioned that Paul has been building up to this point in the first seven chapters of his letter to the church in Rome. As Kathy mentioned, this is an interesting letter because Paul doesn't know his audience personally. He's never been to Rome. And from the letter, it sounds as though he really wants to go there. He wants to see them, but he's never been there. And this isn't a church that he started, which is also interesting. So many other churches that he writes to were started by Paul. And then he writes to them later as a close friend and as their founder, getting back in touch with them, essentially. But in Romans, there's no such relationship. He's writing to these new Christians, Christians who are at a hinge point in Roman history when there's changes going on in the government, and Christians who are trying to understand what it means to be the church in a new and different time. And it seems that they're ready for some real talk. That is, they're ready for Paul to put some difficult realities on the table about the challenges of the Christian life and the complicated relationship between the created ones, us, and our creator, God, and the Savior, Jesus Christ. So in the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul is addressing these relationships, but most specifically, the human propensity to, toward sin, or really that human inclination away from God. And this gets traced back to the beginning of human existence. Paul draws it all the way back to Adam. And for Paul, Adam essentially represents humanity giving in to temptation. 
Adam and Eve and the decisions that they make in the garden, decisions that go against God's wishes, begin the human narrative of defying God. Really then, throughout the Old Testament, this becomes a pattern. In fact, early, the early Judaic faith became centered around rules and laws that came from God. The Ten Commandments, yes, but also the long list of rules and laws, 613 of them that were contained in the Torah. 613 laws designed not only to guide the way people lived, but also to give God a measure against which to determine whether the people were doing things right. But from the beginning, humans have been rebellious. They've broken the rules and broken the laws, and they've come out of favor with God. Over and over again, humanity chooses sin and not salvation. This is why we have a prayer of confession every week, right? It, it isn't just our fault that we need to confess. It's our inheritance from Adam is what Paul would write. Our inheritance that we as humans are broken and stray from God. And people have known this. Throughout history, people have acknowledged this. In the Jewish faith, atonement and reconciliation with God and with others are primary elements of the faith. And atonement happens primarily through prayer, and through repentance. One of the most holy days of the Jewish faith is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And so then, again, the laws come into play, and the focus is on following the laws with full knowledge that the laws will be broken, and that atonement will be required once again. And so over and over again, this cycle of our brokenness, rules, breaking the rules, saying we're sorry, and being forgiven. But then something changes in Christ. And this is precisely what Paul is writing about in this letter. There's a change in the pattern. Throughout this letter, leading up to this point of the letter, our, our reading today in chapter 8, Paul has been writing to the Romans about this shift from following the law as the source of our salvation to following Christ he basically says that if we're constantly trying to follow the rules, we're going to fail at it. Look at Abraham, with whom we journeyed the last several Sundays. Abraham really wanted to follow God. He tried, but he and Sarah continually made missteps. And many of their own actions seemed to bring them more difficulty and grief. In Paul's letter, he writes about Abraham, and he basically says, look, Abraham tried. He tried to follow the rules. But really, where Abraham should be modeled, what Abraham did that was good, was learn to be a follower of God. A few weeks ago, I referred to that as Abraham's willingness to submit to God. And then all out of his submission came his faith. Faith that was a gift from God, not his own doing. So in all of this, amidst all of the human frailty and inability to turn completely from sin, Paul brings a word of good news. Paul brings a word of beauty to the church in Rome and to the church in your home. And it is right at the start of what Kathy read to us. Paul writes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Despite our human propensity toward sin, despite being constantly drawn away from God and toward the things of this world, 
In Jesus Christ, God changed the course of the human-God relationship. In Jesus Christ, the human desire going all the way back to Adam, the human desires towards sin are replaced with a radical gift of grace. Much like Abraham experienced God's grace, all of humanity experiences the grace that comes in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus, this means, can be seen in a way as a new Adam, a new way to frame our understanding of ourselves and how we are seen before God. In Christ, when Christ dwells among us, in Paul's words, we are transformed through the Holy Spirit to live reflecting God's love into the world. And this is why in our confession of sin, we are not confessing merely so that we will receive forgiveness. It's not our act of confession. We're we're not confessing to see if our confession will be good enough, if our apology will be sincere enough. No, friends, Christ has already done the work of reconciling us to God. And the invitation for us as Christians isn't simply to change our behaviors, to go do good deeds. The invitation for us is to live into our identity as people who are in the spirit, not the flesh. People who are in the spirit, recognizing that the spirit of God dwells in us. Over and over again, we're invited to turn toward God and experience God's transformation in our lives. Being redeemed by God doesn't mean that life isn't challenging. It doesn't mean that we're not still drawn towards sin. But that's why we continually return to God. Not so that our own actions will bring us life, but precisely for the opposite reason. That despite all that we choose and despite our attempts from run, to run from God, God meets us where we are in all of our brokenness and makes us beautiful. This, my friends, is indeed good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.